Welcome back to the Bad Bad News Podcast. My name is Samira Fatiar. As you know, we'll be discussing economic and real estate related current events. Thanks for listening. We'll first start off by diving into new economic data that's been released. Specifically, we'll be looking into a number of indices that can tell us what is happening right now in the economy. We'll then look into U.S. banks and how they are bracing for the worst to come. Finally, we'll dive into our bi-weekly segment of the European View. We'll talk about their recent stimulus deal, as well as a strict housing measure introduced in Barcelona, Spain. As always, let's start off with the economic update. There is always a lot of data that comes out, and I always try to discuss the more relevant indicators. So this time, we'll start off with the Consumer Sentiment Index. Now, before I begin with the Consumer Sentiment Index, I think it would be very helpful to differentiate between the Consumer Sentiment Index and the Consumer Confidence Index, which I talked about last time. See, the Consumer Sentiment Index comes from the University of Michigan, where they survey 500 households nationwide to gauge how people feel about the overall economy. On the other hand, the Consumer Confidence Index comes from the Confidence Board, and they survey 5,000 households across the country. They also gauge how people feel about the economy in general. They work together and help paint a picture of consumer psychology. As you know, all graphics that I refer to in my podcast can easily be found at my blog, which is located at rockwellconsultantsllc.com. So if we were to look at that as a graph for consumer sentiment, we'd see that there was a decrease from June to July, or from 78.1 to 73.2. Again, this really can't tell us much about the future, but at this moment in time, consumers are feeling quite uncertain about the economy. Analysts were hoping that June's numbers were going to demonstrate the start of a V-shaped recovery, but we have unfortunately fallen back down. But who knows, we might be headed for a W-shaped recovery. August numbers will be what tells us if that happens or not. Another important metric that we should review is that of the Industrial Production Index. So what exactly does the Industrial Production Index tell us? Well, it's an index based on several different industries that includes mining, manufacturing, gas, and electricity. It shows the changes in production output and underscores any structural changes happening in the economy. So if we were to look at the chart, again, in the blog, we would notice that we may very well be recovering in those industries since hitting our lowest point in April. This is definitely a positive indicator and shows that we are producing, though not as much as pre-COVID-19 levels, but definitely trying to rise above April 2020 levels. On Wednesday of the past week, the National Association of Realtors, or NAR, released existing home sales numbers for June 2020. The headlines boasted that existing home sales have shot up by 20.7%. This is great news considering that many parts of the country experienced shutdown measures that even prevented realtors from showing homes. But As an economist, I think this headline is misleading. It definitely seemed to have shot up 20.7%, but this was a month-to-month change, meaning this is all relative to the three months prior when home tours were canceled for many areas in the U.S. 
Now, if we were to look at the graph showing existing home sales, it would give a great visualization to understand what has occurred. Yes, there has been a recovery, but still nothing close to pre-COVID levels. It'll all depend on what July numbers show. Though, if we look at year-over-year -year change, June's numbers are still down 11.3%. I've been asked numerous times, why can't you just be positive about the numbers released? They look great, and it seems like we are recovering. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I was academically trained in the field of economics, but more specifically, macroeconomics. We tend to look at many different indicators to get a sense of the bigger picture. The main reason I'm not comforted by this data is because the NAR also reported that prices are still increasing. As I have touched on in previous blog posts, the U.S. wage growth before COVID-19 was low and housing costs were rising. But we're still seeing housing costs rising, which does not make any sense. And frankly, it can't be sustained. Prices now are higher than it's been in the past four years. This is worrisome to me because we're still seeing high unemployment numbers. If homeowners end up losing their jobs and can't afford their mortgages, we may very well see a flood of foreclosures. In addition to this, there's a flood of evictions about to happen as the federal moratorium for evictions were lifted over this past weekend. So now let's look at banks and what they're doing to protect themselves for the future. Five major banks in the U.S., Citigroup, U.S. Bank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan Chase have collectively warned of a total of $104 billion worth of loans being defaulted on. This should highlight just how bad banks think the near future is going to be. With the $600 monthly federal unemployment stimulus ending, many don't know how they'll be able to keep up with many of their loans and other debts. From the looks of these five banks' quarterly reports, they have collectively set aside about $35 billion towards provision for credit loss. Many analysts say they may be overpreparing, but in my opinion, there's no such thing. The economic environment is still very uncertain. Just to be extra clear, provision for credit loss is an approximation of potential losses that a business expects due to credit risk, or the probability that a borrower won't be able to repay their debts. Now, because banks had to set aside about $35 billion for bad debt, their profits were hit pretty hard. I think this is very healthy, as opposed to the way banks were behaving during the financial crisis of 2008. They are actually putting aside money to bail themselves out, so to speak, which is how businesses should be running, right? Who would have thought that after bailing out the, the banks that they would actually become responsible enough to look after themselves? Well, it's not that simple. Due to the Fed's new stress test requirements, these banks were forced to put a, aside a large amount of money. As I'm sure you're aware by now, I've been very upset by many of the actions taken by the Fed thus far. But this is one action I can actually get behind. I believe we should be doing everything in our power to hold businesses responsible for themselves. If we were to look at the net income across Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo, we'd see that it's hit its lowest point since the financial crisis of 2008. Though during that time, we did see net income go negative. We haven't yet seen that this time, but it should be something that we should keep an eye on. While reading the quarterly reports of three of the banks, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, I noticed the assumptions they used to base their forecasts off of. See, J.P. Morgan mentioned that they base their forecast on conservative assumptions and that they do not foresee another need to put aside money for future credit loss. 
Citigroup based their forecast on the un unemployment rate peaking in the low to mid-teens, but seeing U.S. GDP falling precipitously. Wells Fargo's assumptions were a bit more interesting, in that they assumed the unemployment rate would fall to 10% this year, and that the U.S. would resume growth by the second half of the year. They also foresee housing prices stabilizing, but see commercial real estate prices declining by 10-15%. to 15%. I find this interesting, to see housing prices stabilizing, but commercial real estate prices decreasing. See, in the past, we have always seen commercial real estate following a somewhat similar but delayed trend to re residential real estate. So personally, I foresee both residential and commercial real estate prices falling for many of the reasons I've already discussed, like the eviction moratorium being lifted, unemployment continuing to stay at high levels, and many businesses closing due to the lockdowns. A footnote in many of these quarterly reports was that they foresee the majority of bad credit being from credit card debt. I think it'll be interesting how much actually happens and how much will actually be from bad mortgages versus credit card debt. And now for the European view. I've been receiving a lot of questions regarding the stimulus deal that's being discussed in Europe, and I think it would be a great topic to cover. In addition to this, I'd like to dive into Barcelona, Spain, and see what they're doing to curb their housing affordability crisis. See, the more we know about what other countries are doing to solve this issue, the more we might be able to come up with a solution that would work for us. So let's begin with the European stimulus package. But before I begin, I think I should explain some basic facts surrounding the European Union, or the EU. The EU is a 27-nation bloc that deals with political and economic policies together. A major misunderstanding is confusing the EU with the Eurozone. The Eurozone is made up of 19 of the 27 nations of the EU, and they share the same currency. I know I have mentioned this previously, but the European debt crisis of 2012 took a large toll on the EU as a whole. But many of the Mediterranean countries were hit the hardest. Many of the wealthy northern EU members had to essentially bail out the less financially responsible southern members. So when the EU called its members to come together to discuss this stimulus package, it was no walk in the park. But in the end, they did come up with an agreement for a 750 billion euro stimulus package. If you'd like to see a visual breakdown of the European stimulus package, I'd encourage you to go to the blog. In it, you'll see that 360 billion euros will be issued as low interest loans, while the remaining 390 billion euros is made up of grants. It should be noted that one third of the funding is meant to combat climate change. So, in addition to making sure countries can fiscally survive this crisis, the EU is looking ahead to make sure that they are doing some part in making a cleaner future. The big question with the EU stimulus package is how is it going to be paid for? The Dutch Prime Minister was one of many hardliners against the large sum being allocated towards grants. He was joined by leaders of Sweden, Denmark, and Austria in his distrust. It was initially discussed to have 500 billion euros allocated towards grants, but the bloc finally compromised with 390 billion euros. See, they don't trust their southern counterparts because of what had happened in the debt crisis of 2012. All four countries compromised because they would receive budget rebates of more than 50 billion euros over the next seven years. Okay, 
great, they came up with a number. But how is this all going to be funded? Well, it's going to be through the issuance of joint EU debt, as well as some of it coming out of the EU budget, and will have to be repaid by 2058. This also means that the countries that contribute more are likely to bear more of the financial burden. Looking at the map on the blog, you can see how many countries have increasing debt as well as countries that have been more fiscally responsible. Italy and Greece seem to have the highest debt to GDP ratio, and it's only going to increase, unfortunately. An interesting trend here is that for the most part, the northern EU countries tend to have less debt to GDP as compared to their southern counterparts. I think it would be beneficial to discuss the bond issuance that was entailed in the stimulus package. For years now, there's been talks about introducing a so-called euro bond, where the whole EU bloc would issue the debt together instead of individually issuing bonds, which is what is in the agreement under the current stimulus package. After many years of debate with the topic, the European Parliamentary Research Service sent out a briefing in April 2020, entailing what a eurobond might look like. In the briefing, the European Parliament wanted to see how eurobonds would offer a viable alternative to the US dollar bond market, and how they could foster integration of the European sovereign debt market, lower borrowing costs, increase liquidity, budgetary discipline and compliance with the Stability and Growth Pact, promote coordinated structural reforms, and make capital markets more stable. This is very important to highlight because it shows Europe's desire to be able to compete with the US dollar bond market. They explored three possibilities of how this would be implemented. If you'd like to learn more about the three possibilities, I highly encourage you to check out the link in the blog. Now, another interesting point to discuss is that of the European Central Bank's role, or the ECB. I wanted to understand what the ECB was doing to help stimulate the European economy, especially since there's a predicted 8.3% contraction in the European economy set for this year. Like many central banks around the world, the ECB has found ways of increasing the money supply. See, the ECB, for a few years now, has been allowed to buy corporate bonds because their debt markets are nowhere near as deep as the US's. This means that they cannot just buy government bonds from those within the European Union to sustain the levels of money supply that they need. So I was curious to see what the requirements were for the credit rating of these corporate bonds that the ECB has been purchasing. It turns out that they won't buy anything below a triple B minus rating, which is the cutoff for being defined as an investment grade bond. This is quite the contrast to what we've been seeing from the Federal Reserve in the US, who has been buying junk rated corporate bonds, but more on that in a little bit. So now let's compare the monetary and fiscal responses to that of the US. We've passed several funding programs to help people through the economic impact of COVID-19 we've paid out the following. $50 billion to state funding through the Stafford Act, $8.3 billion of emergency coronavirus funding, of which $1.03 billion went to state, local, and tribal governments, $2.2 trillion, which was the biggest stimulus package in modern American history, of which $150 billion went to state and local governments, and $500 billion went to lending to businesses as well as state and local governments. We did another $484 billion to replenish the Paycheck Protection Program. And now we're pending a new coronavirus package or extending the federal weekly unemployment benefits. So 
So far, the U.S. government has spent nearly close to $2.7 trillion on dealing with the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. I've attached a graph in the blog that shows the national debt increasing by almost $3 trillion since March of this year. It's important to point out that when we hear or see the word trillion, we don't necessarily understand the magnitude of how large a number it actually is. The most current estimate of our national debt is about $26.5 trillion. That means that there are 11 zeros in front of 26.5. So now if we were to break it down to how much each taxpayer owes, it's roughly $213,277. That's insane. It's also worthy to note that we haven't experienced such an increase in a short amount of time in modern history. So in total, we have tried to save the economy through bailouts and loans for businesses, as well as providing individuals with a $1,200 stimulus check, but we still have a long journey ahead. Personally, I don't think this is the right approach, but more on that in a little bit. Now, let's turn our attention to the Fed's balance sheet, which has increased by $2 trillion since March. What's the problem? Well, let's first review some basic monetary economic rules. The Fed is able to increase the money supply by purchasing securities. Securities are made up of stocks and bonds. But the Fed usually buys treasury bills, and that tends to be enough. When we increase the supply of anything, we know that it becomes less valuable. This then introduces the concept of inflation, which deals with purchasing power. If you can't buy the same basket of goods because it's more expensive, that means inflation went up. When inflation increases, interest rates decrease because it becomes cheaper to borrow because there's a larger supply of money available. Because of this, we have been witnessing historically low interest rates. But so far, thankfully, inflation hasn't created too much of a problem, and that's due to other things in play. Things that I'd rather talk about in a later podcast. Now, going back to why a $2 trillion increase in the Fed's balance sheet is not a healthy sign. As discussed, the Fed usually buys treasury bills, but we know recently that they have included corporate bond ETFs as well as individual corporate bonds to their list of assets that they are purchasing, all of which has been labeled as junk-rated credit bonds. So in order to increase the money supply, we're buying bad debt from companies that are insolvent. Yes, you heard that right. I can say that at least the ECB has a standard but now the Fed is picking and choosing which corporations get to survive. I just find it interesting that Wall Street, which is so adamantly opposed to socialism, is welcoming the bailouts and not to mention morally hazardous behavior with open arms. Now, at the same time, the Fed is punishing people for not buying stocks. How so? Well, they're currently purchasing massive amounts of long-term treasury bonds. When this occurs, prices of these bonds increase and yields decrease. Any investor would say that they wouldn't want to have to purchase an asset at a high price only to receive little to no returns. So they're being pushed into buying other assets, mostly into stocks, but some are also being pushed into other asset classes too. Take a look at gold, for example, and the news of it nearing record highs. This is a big deal, as gold is seen as a hedge against a volatile market. Whether it actually works as a hedge is a different story, but to many investors, this is a safe bet. Now, at the same time, I think this could possibly explain why we are continuing to see real estate prices rise. 
With many people looking for alternative assets, real estate is a great place for people to park their money for some time. At least, that's what many have done in history. The problem I see this time around with doing that is the impending flood of evictions and foreclosures that most likely will happen in the market. As we discussed, a larger supply of anything will decrease its price. The same can be said for real estate. So although investors may be looking for a place to park their money right now and earn a return in the short run, it will have long-term consequences. By now, I'm sure you're tired of hearing me complain about how the U.S. has handled the coronavirus economic fallout. So, what's my solution? While the EU is working together to bail out countries, we've been working together to bail out corporations. Some, in my opinion, have been an absolute waste of money. We, as Americans, have been adamant about how proud we are of capitalism. But true capitalism wouldn't be in support of a government or central bank bailing out corporations. If we're so willing to bail out corporations, why aren't we willing to bail out the individuals? I've heard the story over and over again. Trickle-down economics works, but in reality, it won't in this situation. Bailing out the airlines was one of the worst ideas I've ever seen. The Fed buying individual corporate bonds is an even worse idea. The Fed has increased its balance sheet by about $2 trillion. The U.S. government has spent trillions bailing out corporations, as well as giving out help through the PPP program. Some of those loans will never see who the recipients were. Okay, so what's the solution? Let's do a preliminary calculation. If we have roughly 350 million people living in the United States, and we gave every individual $20,000, that would amount to $7 trillion. Yes, that's a very large number. But look at how much we've already spent trying to bail out corporations and how successful that's been. Trust me, I've heard the arguments. The average American is financially illiterate. I will reiterate this once again. I can name a large list of American corporations that have been insolvent for years and yet we're still keeping them alive. The way I see it, no matter how the average American citizen spends their money, it pumps money back into the economy. The way corporations spend their money doesn't necessarily. And every how the average American spends it, it gets taxed. So the government already starts recouping that money. If we were to shut down the country for four to six weeks to get the virus under control and pay every individual $20,000, we could actually survive the coronavirus economic fallout. We have record-breaking amounts of people lining up at food banks. We have record-breaking amounts of people losing their health insurance. We have record-breaking amounts of people needing unemployment benefits. Shouldn't we be helping the individual instead of Wall Street? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm neither for or against socialism, but it's mind-boggling to me to see our willingness to bail out the corporate citizen, but not the American citizen. If we're going to remain as anti-socialists, shouldn't this also apply to Wall Street? So now let's shift gears back into our European view. And now we're going to be talking about Barcelona, Spain. Last time, I talked about Lisbon, Portugal, and how they started a new program to help their housing affordability crisis. To continue on the same topic, I saw that Barcelona, Spain is introducing a more strict program to deal with their housing affordability crisis. Now, ever since the global financial crisis of 2008 and the European debt crisis of 2012, Spain has been struggling like many of its southern European counterparts. The Catalonian government, where Barcelona is located in, has announced that if landlords haven't rented their units in the past two years and have not had any utility usage in those units, 
that the government will take those housing units at 50% of market value and lease it out as public housing. Though many lawmakers are hoping they don't actually have to buy these units, but that this incentivizes landlords to rent it out at a lower price. See, a lot of these landlords have opted into having vacant units as opposed to renting the units out at a lower price, which honestly baffles me. But in any case, these landlords have decided that they would wait it out until the real estate market comes back, and they can start renting their units out at a higher price. Now, I can see where the government wants to do something right to help with the affordability crisis, but to threaten to take people's property away? I just can't understand it as an American. Again, officials have stressed that this is more of a threat than an action they want to impose. I'm sure there are definitely other ways of incentivizing landlords, like what officials did in Lisbon, Portugal, but it might just come down to cultural differences. What I mean by this is that maybe the only way to get people's attention in Spain is to threaten to take away their property. This, of course, is just a mere assumption, but like I said, it seems extremely more strict than what Lisbon did just next door. People have asked me, why can't you share some good news? Well, I wouldn't be able to call this podcast bad, bad news. But the more honest answer is, I would rather be a pessimist and be wrong than be an optimist and be wrong. I feel like preparing for the worst to happen is a lot better than expecting everything to be rainbows and sunshine and then be wrong. As I've said in the past, I truly hope I'm wrong about the economic future. But I also think it's important to share my thoughts when I look at the data and what it means for our future. If it helps just one person, it makes all my hours of research worth it. Stay safe, everyone. I'll talk to you in two weeks.